here. Uh, we go way back, <laughs> about three and a half years ago. Uh, their son Joshua uh, had asked our daughter Bethany to have her hand in marriage. And we met at a restaurant somewhere up north of here, I forget where. But we hit it off right away. Uh, so we have a son and a daughter, and now a new grandson in common. Uh, we share a common bond as pastors. Uh, at that time, he was out, he and Rhonda were out in Michigan serving, and we shared the joys and stories and some of the challenges, and we won't go into those details, of ministry. He's currently the professor of pastor of theology at Westminster Seminary. And John, it's just an honor to have you here today. I consider him a friend. I can cry on his shoulder and tell him my woes, and he the same. And it's just great to have he and Rhonda be here today and be a part of this. So, John, come and bless us from the word. Well, good morning, church. Uh, it is a pleasure and a privilege uh, to be with you today. I want to begin by uh, thanking the uh, leadership of your church and especially uh, Pastor Will and Pastor Matt for the genuine privilege of being invited to provide this charge today. I'm getting to know Pastor Will. Uh, we have the privilege of uh, having him as one of our students in our doctoral program at Westminster Seminary. And uh, as you've just heard, uh, the meters and the curries are now related beyond just our fellowship in Jesus. Uh, we share a common family. Um, that's a joy for us, not just because of the wonderful, godly bride that uh, the Lord provided for our son through uh, Matt and Leslie, and now our little uh, Henry that we're happy to show you pictures of if you're interested. But uh, Matt mentioned the first time we met Matt and Leslie, and after about four minutes of the niceties, uh, you know, we're the parents of the groom, you're the parents of the bride, uh, Matt and I started talking about ministry while everybody else was talking about other things. And I learned that Matt was deeply committed to expository preaching. And I thought, son, you can marry the daughter. The dad's an expository preacher. I do love the fact that we're on the same page about the importance of rightly handling and proclaiming the Word of God as a pastor. And actually, it was knowing that, not only the personal affection, but knowing that common commitment that encouraged me to take this uh, high privilege today. So I'm thankful to be able to present to you the charge to the new pastors, but if it's okay with you, I'd also like to include, because they share in the leadership of the church with the pastors, the elders of the church. So here's the charge. If you really want to be on Christ's mission, prioritize and promote the preaching of the Word of God. Now, I draw that charge from the Spirit-inspired expression of the motive, the message, and the method for ministry that we find in Romans chapter 10. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, I invite you to look there. Just listen for a moment to Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 17. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the, one when the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. There's no shortage of experts who tell the church how she is supposed to be successful and significant. The pressures on pastors and elders to pivot from one more relevant program to another is unrelenting and unforgiving of failure. Romans chapter 10 is a pivotal God-breathed passage for what pastors and the elders who lead with them really need to know. If you really want to be on Christ's mission, prioritize and promote the preaching of God's Word. Would you notice the motive that's in the passage is in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. One of my heroes in church history is a man named Archibald Alexander, and he wrote this, if the Christian church felt her obligations to her Lord and Redeemer as she ought, the whole body would be like one great missionary society whose chief object was to spread the gospel over the world. This verse Romans 10.1 is Christ's appointed servant and His anointed spokesman to the Gentiles telling us what animates His heart, what moves His heart, Christ's mission to save the world. If you've been around the Bible for a while, you might remember the promise God gave to Abraham in the Old Testament, I will bless you and to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you all the families, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And then he gave this promise to the prophet Isaiah, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and all nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And then when you get to the book of Romans, the apostle bookends this great epistle with glorious statements, chapter 1, 3 to 15, chapter 5, 8 to 21. I'll let you read them for yourself. Glorious statements to say all of those Old Testament promises about that mission are fulfilled in His ministry to the Gentiles. Here's the point. 
The motive behind Paul writing what he did in this passage is an innumerable multitude from every people receiving gospel blessing. He was motivated by a heart-burning, life-investing, suffering-embracing desire to see multitudes saved. And any church that claims to be a New Testament church, any church that is true to the teaching of the apostles must have that motivation. I had the privilege this week of having lunch with one of our returning students who just came back from a mission to India. And he told me about the depleted resources that they have in terms of pastors, in terms of teachers, and so that he as a student, even when he arrived, he was Pastor Kevin because he was studying the Bible. But what astonished him was how the churches in India are planting churches. Churches start and People are saved by the hundreds, and then they plant churches, and they plant churches, and people are saved by the hundreds, and it's just what they expect. The stewardship that is entrusted to pastors and elders of the church, the charge is to keep the church motivated for the, if I could put it this way, the so that in the blessing, for mission to the multitudes. And on that mission... The church carries a very clear and unchanging message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 2 to 13. The apostle gives us a compact, glorious description and defense of the message that Jesus entrusted to him. It's a complex, razor-sharp argument that proves that his message grows right out of the Old Testament scriptures that were given to Israel. And so for the sake of time on this occasion, let me just give you the tweetable version of verses 2 to 13. Here it is. Acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your work at righteousness, but on Christ alone received by faith alone. It's not about your religious background. It's not about your moral performance. It's not about your social status. It's not about your ethnic roots. It's not about where you're from or what you've done or who your people are. Acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your work at righteousness, but on Christ alone, received by faith alone. Christ, revealed in the Scriptures, is God's righteousness for everyone who simply believes in Him. That's glorious good news. And that's the message that gets lost people saved, and it gets saved people grown the gospel is the message, listen, that accomplishes Christ's mission to fulfill God's purposes to your neighbors and to the nations. And that message has been entrusted to pastors and to elders to protect it and to promote it. And the great temptation throughout the whole history of the church, certainly no less in our culture than previously, is for ministries to mess with the message. Because we're afraid of what the neighbors might say. We're afraid of what the neighbors might do. We're afraid that the church is, is going to become irrelevant. So we substitute, we supplement, and we qualify the gospel. Pastors and elders are charged by Jesus to take care, to be alert, to protect and promote Christ's message given to us in the Scriptures. And the best way you can do that is by prioritizing and promoting the preaching of the gospel. 
Back in the text, the Spirit-inspired's way, the Spirit-inspired way to advance Christ's mission through Christ's message is in verses 14 to 17. Look at verse 14 to 17. Paul asks four mission-hearted questions. How are they to call on him in whom they do not believe? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? During that period of history that we call the Protestant Reformation, the church in France was experiencing profound persecution, and they needed leaders. And to get their leaders, they had to send them to Geneva to get trained. And when they sent him to Geneva, the leader of the Reformation in Geneva said this to the church in France, send us your wood and we'll send you back arrows. Here's the gospel mission, gospel-hearted question, how? What's the method Christ has chosen to send his mission into the world? What's the method Christ uses to get his message to lost people? Here's the God-given, spirit-inspired, apostolic answer. Preaching by preachers. They're the arrows. In order for self-righteous and unrighteous people to be made righteous, they've got to call on Christ. In order for them to call, they have to believe. In order for them to believe, they have to hear him. In order to hear him, somebody has to preach. And in order for them to preach, they've got to be sent. That's Christ's method. So church, pastors, elders, If you really want to be on Christ's mission, not your own mission, not some culturally accommodated, culturally acceptable mission, here's the charge. Prioritize and promote the preaching of the gospel. Here's what that means. It means preachers have to work hard to be studied and accurate and applicable. It means that preachers need to stay close to God so that when they step up to preach, they are filled with the Spirit of God. And that means that elders need to give preachers the time they need to prepare to work hard at the Word. They need to protect their preachers from people outside the church and people inside the church who want to discourage them and distract them from their primary priority. It means that together... Elders and pastors need to fight against minimizing the word and compromising the word in the ministry of the church. And it means that the whole church together should expect that when the man of God gets up to preach the word of God to the people of God, Christ is going to move his agenda forward in people's lives. If you want to read read about Paul when he planted the church in Ephesus that became an epicenter church that planted churches all the way through the Lycus Valley. Go back and read about the Reformation and the leaders of the Reformation who preached and preached and preached themselves into the grave. Go back and read about the early history of the country and the colonies and the the awakening that God gave to the colonies under the incessant preaching of George Whitfield. There's the charge from Romans 10. If you really want to be on Christ's mission, prioritize, promote, and protect the preaching of the Word of God. Amen.
When you go to plant a church, you don't expect to get another set of grandparents. But uh, David and Betty White have in many ways become grandparents, not only to Sarah and I, getting Betty, particularly the scolding of when I'm wearing shorts in the winter, <laughs> or, or even when I'm wearing shorts and I'm about ready to preach, which I have done, um, which I, my wife no longer lets me do. But they've also been, been grandparents to my children and the love that they've had. I wish in so many ways I could take, as, as you all know, with redemption ending, I wish I could grab everyone who was part of redemption and bring them here. But I am thankful that David and Betty and, and other dear friends are here this morning. And I asked David if he would spend a few moments praying for us as pastors to begin this new journey here at Grace Chapel. So my brother, dear brother David White. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we come to you humbly as we know how. We bow before you for we are nothing, dust and ashes. But we pray for these men you've called, Lord Jesus. The responsibility is a tall ministry, it's an awesome ministry, Lord Jesus, they have. Guide and help and strengthen them in this thing, their wives and their children, Brother Will and Brother Matt, uh, Pastor Will, Pastor Matt, guide and help them and strengthen them in this awesome task of leading the church, teaching the church to reach out to those that are lost and struggling with sin and foolishness of life. My God, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. And so we present them to you, Lord Jesus, to touch their hearts and their minds so they are guided by you. For you said in your scripture, you will instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go. And you would guide us to be our counselor with your eyes upon us. So keep your eyes on our pastors here, Lord, as he yeah, minister to the people of God. Grant them the strength, power, and might, Lord Jesus, that they need. And uh, let the folks uh, and the pastors love one another with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of a power and of a sound mind that is a controlled mind. We ask your help and strength for them in Jesus' name as they undertake this awesome task of pastoring Matt and the family, Will and the family. Amen. Amen. my father-in-law behind me. <laughs> Twenty-some years ago, when I, or I should correct myself, when Sarah sought me down and pursued me, <laughs> I had to go through and get his permission to marry Sarah. And I remember standing 
he was down, I think it was an old Civilization video game that he was playing, and, and yes, pastors do play video games at times. <laughs> the secret's out of the closet. But. So he, and I'm down there standing, leaning against the pole for probably two, three hours, and then he finally, he just leans over to me and says, um, you got something to ask me, don't you? Are you going to get it over with? <laughs> and I think they actually ended up asking me to marry Sarah. I don't remember if I actually got the words out. But he's here this morning. I've appreciated their, their love and kindness to me. Um, he's at the, this is this final year of particular pastoral ministry. Pastors never retire. We just go do something else. But he's been 30 plus years at the Baptist Church in Northville, in Northville, New York. And this is his final year there. And he's going to be transitioning to probably be even busier after he gets out in some respects. But I, I'm just thankful for that they can be here, and he's going to share um, a brief charge to you guys. So thank you. Thank you, Will. Yeah, Will's a good man. You can take my word for it. He's a good man. Well, it's good to be back at Havertown Chapel. You say back? Yeah, I was here 40 years ago, not for service, but for the uh, ordination examining council for my good friend Greg Smurl. I can't remember what room it was in, but I know it was here, and I know he did a good job. So it's good to be back, and it is a privilege to be able to uh, speak to you this morning. Now, we got to listen in as uh, the last message, a great gospel-centered message, was given to the pastors and elders. We listened in. We're going to let them listen in now, okay, as I, as I talk to the rest of us. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13. I want to focus on two verses, and I'm going to sneak a little bit in from another verse. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Down to verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let me sneak in a couple more words here. Next verse. Pray for us. Talking about leaders, doesn't specifically say pastors, but obviously in this context, we're talking about church leaders, those who are doing the teaching. Uh, the, the word is just a generic word for leader in Greek. It means a, you know, a supervisor, a guide, political leader, military commander. Same term is used also in verse 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Not that the leaders are not saints, but, but what it's saying is it's, it's not like there's two levels of, of Christian, you know, clergy and laity, but there are different roles, definitely different roles, different callings, and some are called to be pastors. And he's telling us here a specific stance we are to have toward them, which I want to commend to you this morning. What does a leader do? Well, the things that are emphasized in this context are two things. He instructs and he inspires. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Now that's the key, and I, I love the last message. Preaching the word of God is the key thing. A lot of churches look for a pastor who's an entrepreneur, like a CEO. Some look for an entertainer. I went to one church, seriously, the pastor comes up to preach, he goes like this. Seriously? You come and entertain us? No, no, no. You want an exegete. You want someone who is going to know and study and continually grow in the Word of God and be able to take those truths and apply them to your lives, to instruct you. That's what you want. 
A good spiritual leader will instruct you in the ways of God, who God is, what he expects you to do. You don't want the pastor's opinions or whatever is culturally current, which is the big thing today. Now, of course, there's a sense in which we all are to do that. The scripture says, let the word of God dwell in you, all of you richly, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But the church leaders, your pastors, your pastors are called and gifted and trained and committed to this as their primary task. They live to do this. They don't have another job. They don't have another calling. This is what they live to do. So you need to expect and respect them for this. The Bible says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So again, expect this from your pastors. Respect them for it. That is their key role. But secondly, this verse shows us that their lives are to inspire us. It goes on in verse 7. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That word consider there, the Greek word means look at it again. Look at it again. Now, we all know the, the fishbowl problem of being a pastor. You know, he's in a fishbowl and his kids are in a fishbowl. Now, speaking of the pastor's kids, who happen to be my grandkids in this case, they're practically perfect in every way. So you don't need to look any further. Take my word for that as well. Some people complain that a pastor and family live in a fishbowl. Now, there are illegitimate intrusiveness that can take place. There is. But on the other hand, his life should be observed over and over again, as this verse says. Consider the outcome of his way of life for inspiration. Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said, speaking of the preacher, in great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, that is the pastor, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. By awful, it means awesome. A holy minister, and you have two of them, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Now, down to verse 17. Believers are taught not only to remember their leaders, but to obey them and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now, we could automatically say, well, that, that's not absolute, obviously. Uh, well, of course it's not. The only absolute obedience and submissiveness goes to God. But don't make the exception the rule. The rule is obey and submit. But we need to do a little nuancing here. These are not the normal Greek words that are used in the Bible for obey and submit. So let me show you what, what he's really saying here with a little more clarity. The word for obey here is the word that means be persuaded, be convinced. It's not the word to choose like children obey your parents, totally different word. It's a word that means to be persuaded, just passive of the word persuade. In other words, be convinced. I'm not telling you to blindly follow your pastors. It's saying listen to what they say and be convinced by what they say, as they teach you from the word of God. Similarly, the word for submit, it's not that word that's used, you know, all things put in submission to Christ, wives submit to your husbands. It's not that word. It's a totally different word. It means to yield. Yield or give way. Now, that's still pretty powerful, but, but the point here is let yourselves be teachable. 
Be not just open-minded, but eager. So what it's giving you here is what should be your default stance towards the teaching of the pastor. It's not prove it. You know, that's not the default stance. The default stance is teach me more. I want, to, I want to understand that better. Thank you for preaching that. Thank you for teaching that. That's your default stance is to be persuaded, be convinced, and to yield to your pastors. That's what the Bible says. Every sermon, every Bible lesson is going to include directions for you. They're going to tell you something you need to believe, something you need to do, something you need to stop doing, and you should be convinced and yield. That's what the Bible says here. It says they're going to have to give account for what they tell you and not tell you. So let God take care of that. Now, when I do premarital counseling, sometimes this is what I'll say to the couple. We'll go into the verses in Ephesians, uh, you know, about the submission and about love. And I'll say to the husband, I'll look at him and say, now, are you willing for the rest of your life to put yourself second and her first to make her happiness and her well-being and her security great no matter what you sacrifice? If not, don't marry her. Then I'll say to the wife, are you willing? Do you trust this man enough? that you will submit to his ultimate leadership in your life. If not, don't marry him. Now I say to you, are you willing to trust these two men with this stance we spoke of here, being persuaded, being convinced, obeying, submitting? If, are you willing to do that? If not, don't call them as pastors. Wait a minute, you're already dead. <laughs> so there it is, it's right in the Bible. Make that your default stance regarding your pastors. See the result for the pastor. It goes on and says here, still in verse 17, let them do this, their pastoral ministry, with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What makes a pastor groan? Let me tell you what makes a pastor groan. When you're counseling a, a couple in your church, both members of the church, they got kids, and they're not getting along together, they want to get divorced, you know exactly what they need to do. They know exactly what they need to do. You need to forgive this. You need to stop doing that. And they refuse. And the marriage breaks up. That makes, that makes a, a pastor groan. Or someone comes to you with a substance abuse problem. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. They know what they need to do. You know what they need to do. You show them from the word of God. You challenge them. They don't do it. That makes a pastor groan. But you know one of the, the worst things that make a pastor groan is when people in their church fight with one another conflict in the church, even more than fighting against them, seeing brothers and sisters fight one another. Let me tell you a story about our church. Our church in Northville is even older than yours. It goes back to 1802. I got all the minutes. I got to read them. In 1840, our church split. Now, Northville's not a big town. You know, we have about 1,000 now. It might have been a little bigger back then. Only Baptist church there. It's split in two. It's split in two. The, the, the minutes are different. They excommunicated one another over it. It had to do with an elder in another church. They excommunicated one another. In the minutes, they would refer to the Methodists as our Methodist brethren. They'd refer to the other Baptist churches, our so-called brethren, you know. I mean, they were really bitterly nasty against one another. In 1844, four years later, all of a sudden, this page appears in the minutes. We repent of all the things we said to one another. We, we apologize. We take back our excommunications. We're getting back together again. We're, we're putting a a, uh, 
a block in front of the weak. We are taking the name of Christ and we're dragging you through the dirt. We can't do this anymore. We've got to get along together. And I think that's why our church has lasted 219 years now, uh, because the Lord blessed them for overcoming those bitter, bitter differences that they had. Want to see your pastors groan and then bicker and fight with one another. Their greatest joy is seeing you love one another. That's even better than you com complimenting them. I mean, go ahead and do that. Please do. But even better than saying nice things to them is you saying nice things to one another. Now, I, I, you all, all the ones I've met so far, you seem like pretty nice people, okay? So I, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't get along together. You all love Jesus, right? All love the Lord. And you, you seem to like one another, so don't fight. He said before you've had your ups and downs. I know what that means. We all know what that means. There's been conflict. Get rid of that. Overcome it. Forgive, forget, whatever you need to do. Otherwise, your pastors will groan. Um, the Bible says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. You know, the person hurt most by disunity is the Lord Jesus Christ, but I think second is the pastor. Now, I'm, I'm not given the crying, just not my makeup. You know, ever since I got past the dirty diaper, please change it stage. I really haven't cried very much. But my former church, not the one I'm in now, Conflict, 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 terrible conflict. I read the church minutes, conflict 30 years back. And I remember once time after prayer meeting, these two women screaming at one another about who was going to do the Christmas decorations in the church. <laughs> I went home and I wept. I groaned. I cried. Preached a sermon on uh, 1 Corinthians 13, got everyone to commit to love one another. And, well, the end, the end of the story is they managed to get along together because they agreed they didn't like me. So... <laughs> wasn't the greatest thing. But I went a year with a knot in my stomach, an entire year with a knot in my stomach. Don't do that to your pastors. So obey your pastor when as God's spokesman, he challenges you by the word of God to live holy and upright lives with all godliness, to love one another, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. Do it for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Do it also for yourselves, because in making your pastor grow, and it says here, this would be of no advantage to you. If your pastor groans, that's no advantage to you. I saw a shirt on a woman once said, Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Ever seen that one? Well, pastors ain't happy, ain't nobody going to be happy here. That's the truth. If your pastors are miserable, if you're making them groan, then you're going to groan as a church. Now, if I can cheat just a little bit again, I want to go into verse 18. One last point. Pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for your pastors. Pray they will have a close, vibrant, dynamic walk with Christ. Pray they will have insight into God's word. Pray they will have the courage to proclaim it with wisdom and with sensitivity. Pray they'll have sensitivity to the needs of you, God's people. Pray for their personal and family life. And you know what? Pray that God will keep them from great sin. There's pastors that crash and burn, have affairs. They steal money from the church. They deny the faith. That just happened recently. I told my church, if I cheat on my wife, take me out and shoot me. And I meant it. I think we couldn't really do that, but that's how I felt. How about we don't take it that far? How about you pray that your pastor doesn't cheat on his wife? Pray that your pastors don't become greedy for money. That will not bother them if you pray that. 
I'm very happy if my people pray that for me. David said, keep me from great transgressions. Pray, keep your pastors from great transgressions. And then go on and pray about the secret sins as well as in Psalm 19. As a man of my church, a very busy man. He owns a business, a big trucking business and everything. He told me he has it on his, his phone. At 9 o'clock every morning, a thing comes up, pray for Pastor Klug. Boy, that means the world to me. Maybe you need to put that on your phone. Pray for Pastor Will. Pray for Pastor Matt. Pray for your pastors. So, remember your leaders. Call to instruct and inspire you. Obey your leaders, for they speak for God, for your good. And pray for your leaders, because they would be the first to tell you they need it, as all of us pastors do. Now the elders are going to come, and we're going to do just that, and ask you to join us in prayer.